So we're going to, if you didn't get notes, by the way, they're on the back table. I printed uh, a highly uh, exaggerated number of sheets. So you can take one for each finger. Um, but uh, grab one if you didn't. I think it looks like somebody's back there with a few. You might run them around. Um, so we're, we're talking tonight about what the Bible has to say about race and about racism. And uh, it, my, my hope is that this will, this will just equip us, not necessarily to have all the, the answers to know how to decipher every situation, every, every problem that arises. Um, it seems like every day there's just something new that we have to think about, know about, and the way social media works, you have to have an opinion so quickly. Um, you don't. But uh, the, the way it works, right, we are, there's a frenzy. And um, I want us to think, I do want us to think biblically. I want us to think doctrinally. Um, but, but also, I want us to think about just our doctrine really of, of the Christian life, our doctrine of the church, our doctrine of what it means to love one another. I, I think those are the questions that um, if, if we build on a faulty foundation, it really doesn't matter what else we get right or wrong, um, but, but it, it all kind of crumbles. Um, so let me, let me pray for us in that way, and then we'll, we'll get to it. Um, Father, we, we do thank you for times like this where we can gather together around your word, um, surrounded by one another, um, knowing that you have brought us together into this local church and also into the, the, the wider universal church of all peoples, all times uh, that you have been assembling through the ages, um, before Christ's death, after Christ's death. Uh, you have been building together a people that would be for your glory and for your fame uh, in the universe. Um, so when we think about race, when we think about racism, I pray that our minds would be oriented around what would bring you the most glory, um, around what uh, honors the work of our Savior most. Um, help us to do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. There, there are so many things, right, that we can talk about tonight. Uh, so I have chosen to limit our discussion to a few, I think, big foundational ideas. And so over the first half of our time, I want us to think about just foundational principles uh, when it comes to race and racism. And then we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about uh, practical ways that we as the people of God can combat racism individually and corporately. Um, so those are kind of the two ways that we're going we're gonna to tackle this. So um, let's talk about some foundational principles for, for how, to, how to navigate um, this, this topic. Um, turn to Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Let me read this for you. It reminds us that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so that he might, or so, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Um, and you, you may be thinking, why are we taking, why are we going this direction? I, I think it's really important that we have these foundational principles for how our hearts are supposed to operate when, when we think about race. 
Um, I, I think that's the starting point, right? We, we have to start, we have to look at our own hearts, we have to look at our attitudes um, and, and our motives. And, and I think then Ephesians 2 gives us a framework in which to do that. And so Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 reminds us that we are all the people of God's church. We, we are one in Christ, ultimately, right? I mean, that, that is the, the, the biggest guiding principle that we, we need to be mindful of. And that may sound obvious. I, I think that's probably almost cliche to say, well, of course, yeah, we're one in Christ. That's it. And there's so much more we need to add to that. But that's the, the first foundational heart principle that, that we need to, to acknowledge, is that in Christ, we are ultimately one, one people. Um, we'll, we'll talk about how we're distinct in different ways, um, but, but ultimately we are, we are one people in Christ. Number two, we need to acknowledge and reject our tendency toward partiality. We need to acknowledge that we have this tendency to be partial to certain types of people, uh, oftentimes people who look just like us or think just like us, uh, and we need to reject it. So turn to James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So James, he, uh, he tells us, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you skip down to verse 9, he goes on to say that if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's another really important guiding heart principle. Uh, we're one in Christ. And, and then likewise, if, if we show partiality, if we favor anyone over anyone else, especially in the context of the church, uh, we, we are actually transgressing the law. I mean, we're breaking God's law. Right? Now, James is talking specifically about a rich man versus a poor man walking in, but the principle applies much more broadly than that. I think we see that. Um, so, so showing partiality, we need to acknowledge it and we need to reject it. Number three, we need to assume the best. Uh, assume the best of intentions, Assume the best of thoughts, assume the best of motives, especially of our brothers and sisters. Um, I, I think in this day and age, we're prone to being so cynical, right, and very skeptical. Um, how many arguments have you seen online where very quickly it devolves into just people questioning the, the bona fides of the other person, right, uh, and, and a million different issues? Um, but the, the attitude of just constantly being skeptical and cynical and treating one another with kind of a, a side glance, um, that's unchristian. <laughs> that's that's un-gospel. Um, that is unloving. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a, 
a chapter that we often think about when we talk about love. And, and listen to what Paul describes love as. He says that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then listen to this. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Um, I, I think it's a good practice occasionally when you read this passage to replace love with your own name. Uh, to read it in that light. Does this describe me? And if, if you can't say in good faith that it describes you consistently, nobody's going to do this perfectly, um, then, then you can't say that you are necessarily a loving person. Um, and in the context of discussing race, how, how important is this, right? Uh, we, we could talk about right and wrong and, and interpreting facts and stories and statistics and testimony. We can we could talk about that till we're blue in the face. But if you are not actively hoping all things, especially in the life of your brother or sister with which you're having this conversation, then, then you're actually going against the gospel, right? Um, that's, that's so important. I think it's such an easy way that we get swept off into being really no different from the world when we have any conversation about anything, let alone race. And then finally, and I'm sure there are plenty other points we could bring up about how our hearts need to be um, uh, changed and, and, and uh, calibrated, but, but a fourth point here is, is that we as the people of God should pursue peace and mutual upbuilding, we should count others more significant than ourselves. Um, so Romans chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 13. Paul tells us, therefore, let us not pass judgment on any, on one, any, gosh, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but by what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And, and of course here Paul is talking about weak versus strong believers, weak versus strong consciences. Uh, and, and I think the, the broader principle that he's applying here is that uh, we, we, all, we all come from different backgrounds. We have different uh, understandings, expectations um, but, but Paul says, if you're going to defer, if you're going to go a certain direction, if you're going to lean a certain direction, lean in the direction of doing and saying and thinking whatever you can that will build up your brother or sister. Uh, I, think, I think how often our main motive is, is instead to be, to be right uh, or to, to challenge, to correct, to rebuke, what, whatever it may be. And there are certainly times for those things. 
Um, but the, the Bible primarily, right, I mean, right here, even in that context, is saying, no, we, we are called to, to build one another up, uh, to, to care for one another. And then Philippians 2, 1 through 7, reminds us that this was actually the, the very attitude and example and model that Jesus himself set for us. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, Paul says, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Think about that. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's just not the way, that's just not the way we think. It's not, it's not our natural inclination. It's not our natural tendency. Uh, everything we want, even, even I think in the church, we just wanna, we want things to be kind of comfortable for us or suitable for us or meet our needs or, or at least if we're gonna meet someone else's needs, it's gonna be according to our terms. But, but Paul is saying here, we need to consider others more important than even ourselves. That, just doesn't, that doesn't just mean other people. It means even the, the things that concern other people. What worries your brother or sister? That's something that you, you should be mindful of yourself, in other words. And, and it, but he doesn't stop there. He, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. If this sounds difficult, be, be encouraged, be reminded that the king of the universe who made all beings himself stepped into time and history and, and a place, not just any place, but uh, the, the, the Middle East and a time when God's people were so dragged down and considered so second rate in the world. He came into that, made himself the son of a carpenter, which is not the most wealthy occupation of that time, and, and, and lived a life where by his mid-30s he was being hunted down. Because he considered our needs to be more important than whatever plan he might have otherwise come up with for himself. He loved us to death. He loved us at his own expense. That's not just, that's not just the gospel. It is, it, it, that is the gospel. And it then is also our example for how we're to live and how we're to engage with one another. How we're to think about one another and care for one another. All right, that, that's how we display the gospel in the church and outside it. That's how we do this. So, so those are our four principles then that I want us to enter into this conversation thinking about. Um, we, we can talk all day about it, everything else here, and there's so much more that I'd love to, to add to this conversation. Um, but if it's not built on these, these things, this conversation is really not going to be it's not going to be helpful. Ultimately, it, it'll fall apart because it will rely on our own efforts, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, our own understanding, which is fallen and broken. But when we build on the foundation of Jesus, of who he is, of what he has made us to be, 
then, then we can navigate the really tricky, difficult waters of race and racism with the grace of the Lord and, and for his glory and, and not our own, which I think so often ends up being the real motive. So let's talk then about our doctrine. What are some foundational principles for our doctrine? Let's talk about race then, first of all. And when I say race, um, I think it's important just to establish, I think we know this, right, that uh, race in and of itself is not a scientific, biological thing, right? It's not, it's not even really a biblical concept, race, um, as if people are like fundamentally different from one another based on certain traits or, or characteristics, or where you're born, or, or what have you. I think, I think we know that, so, so just know as I say race, that I'm, I'm not referring to there being a fundamental difference in people, um, but rather I'm thinking more in terms of ethnicity, uh, cultural, heritage, that sort of thing, right? Um, so, what does the Bible say about race? And, and I think it's helpful for us to think first about mankind, kind of the broad picture of all of humanity. What has the Bible told us uh, is true about people? Not peoples, the individual nations and peoples of the world. We'll get to that, but, but people in general, broadly. Well, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is the foundational passage uh, that, that, we need to, that we need to turn to. So turn with me. Genesis 1, uh, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. If you were curious, in the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. This is, this is the foundation for our doctrine of man. This is where it starts. The, the only two people in the world, the first man and the first woman, the, the parents of the entirety of humanity, uh, God designates them three times, I think, in this one two-verse section. Uh, he calls them the image of God. They're the image of God. Without distinction, uh, without, without any hint of hierarchy or, or order, no. They are made in the image of God. And this, this has some real obvious implications for us, right? It means that all people, every single human being, the, the most vile, wicked, offending pagan, and, and the, the greatest saint who has ever lived, everyone has dignity and worth just by virtue of being made as a reflection of God. Everybody, every person. It means that, that there's no one genetically more or less like God or more or less acceptable to God. But, but all people, people who, who have disabilities, people of various mental capacities, people uh, from, from every tribe and nation and tongue, every single human being, has been made in God's image. And it's meant to remind us, when we look at them, of our creator. Um, this is why later on, in, after Noah, or in that story, 
the Lord makes it very clear that he will destroy anyone who kills another human being. That the punishment for murder is itself death because you have not just killed a person, that's bad, right? But it's not just bad in and of itself. It's bad because, because you have defaced the face of God. You've defaced the image of God. You've assaulted the image of God. Right? It, it gives a whole, a whole different significance then to the way we view one another. And I think it means that, that Christians, like people who view the Bible, who, who believe the Bible is God's word and cherish it, we of all people have every reason to be fired up and, and, and eager to, to take down any sort of racist tendency in ourselves or in other people. The, the world, in fact, is a little bit inconsistent on this. Because it's impossible to assert that man has dignity and worth and that all people are, are likewise equally dignified and, and worthy and, and, and beautiful if there's no creator who's made them that way. But we know who our creator is. We know that he has endowed mankind with value. And so therefore, we should be the ones at the, at the forefront of thinking deliberately about these issues. Right? We shouldn't shy away from it. We're the ones who, of all people in this world, have every reason to defend the dignity and worth of other people. Mankind is alike in that we've been made in God's image. We're also alike in that we are all marred by the fall. And we are all likewise restored and reconciled to God through Christ alone. There's no other, there's no other way. Romans 5, 18 and 19 reminds us that in Adam all have died. Through one man's disobedience, uh, we, we have inherited death. Uh, but through the one man's righteousness, through Christ himself, we are reconciled to God. Right? This, this is a blanket statement for all of humanity. Um, Christ is the way that we are reconciled to the Lord um, by faith in his name. That's, that's in a nutshell what the Bible has to say about humanity. Uh, but let's see what the Bible has to say more specifically about the, the peoples, the nations that, that we can, can see and distinguish ourselves among. Uh, let's, give a, let's do a very, very brief biblical theology of the nations. Um, I'm not going to turn to these passages. I think they're kind of self-explanatory. In, in, in Genesis, the nations, we kind of see the, the beginning of this idea of different peoples, different nations, uh, at the Tower of Babel, so Genesis 11. Um, the, the people all speak the same language. They're working together, doing something that will bring glory to themselves. They want to build a tower to heaven. And the Lord sees this. He, the Bible says he, he has to stoop down to see this massive tower they think they've built. And he comes down and he, and he says, you know, if, if they do this, this is really, this is going to be a mess. Um, let's, let's spread them out. Let's scatter them. And that was originally God's plan. He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And here in the story of Babel, mankind has rebelled against God, trying to, to find a seat next to him and, and do so by congregating together in their power and assuming their authority. And the Lord laughs and he spreads them out around, uh, among the, the, the geography of, of the world. And he gives them different languages. He confuses their ability to communicate with one another. That's really the genesis of the peoples of the earth. Um, 
the, the peoples of the earth are created by God. These languages, they're made by God. Um, and so in, in that sense, this is the Lord's doing, but it's also the result of sin and the fall. These distinctions, the, the, the curse that Adam and Eve began has always worked its way out in the lives of people. But the Lord is not going to be thwarted by this curse. He's not going to be thwarted by the spread of the human race and then the ensuing division and, and wars and fighting that goes on because we see in Acts, and we see glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament, but in, in Acts in, at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the, the people of God uh, are brought together. Uh, the disciples, they're, they're speaking in tongues. They're speaking the languages of people all around them. And so the Lord, it seems, has this plan to actually undo what happened at Babel. And he brings people together by his Holy Spirit. He assembles them together from every tribe and nation over the course of history into one people, his church. Uh, so that in Revelation, John looks and he sees a great multitude People from every tribe and nation and tongue praising the one true God of the earth. This is the, this is the trajectory of history. Is that the Lord brings people scattered, people divided, people from different backgrounds, different languages. He brings them together. So the Bible acknowledges then that there are differences among people. Uh, the, the Bible is very clear that there are different peoples and languages and cultures the Bible doesn't ignore these things. The Bible doesn't sweep them under the rug as though, well, but we're all people. And the Bible is very clear. We're, we're all people, absolutely. We're made in the image of God, and yet there are different tribes and nations and languages. Revelation makes it even debatable whether those tribes and nations and languages will ultimately go away or if they'll just be a part of this new humanity that the Lord is creating, where he's glorified by just a symphony of different voices and peoples, Right? But the, the Bible is, 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 is clear that, that we are to be united then for God's glory. It's the, it's the undoing of Babel, where the people united to, to steal his glory in Revelation were united to glorify his name. He thwarts the wicked and evil plans of men to bring about his own good purposes. But not only that, the, the Bible then, by speaking about the different peoples this way, it suggests that there's no one dominant culture. The Bible itself is divided into two, three languages. Um, the, 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 the people of the Old Testament, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, even, even they have this mission to bring in the nations into God's people, to care for the sojourner, the foreigner in their midst, and so on. There's no one dominant culture. In, and finally, the Bible tells us, though, that despite our different backgrounds, ethnicities, cultural heritage, our identity is ultimately found in Christ alone. So, so Galatians 3, verse 28, says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I, I love that passage in part because there's something that is, that is implied here, which is this, we, no one in their right mind reads this and thinks, there's no more male and female. We're done here. Boys, girls, you don't exist. You're just people. Nobody reads that. Well, some people actually do read that and interpret it that way. Uh, people who love the Bible and, and know how to interpret it rightly, they, they don't see it that way, right? 
Um, now, the Bible is clear. There are certainly distinctions among people. There are differences. Um, but our ultimate identity is not found in these things. It's, it's found in Christ. So that, yeah, there are men and there are women, but in Christ there, there aren't men or women because we, our identity is found in him alone and him ultimately. Does that make sense? So those are some foundational principles about our doctrine concerning race. Let's think about racism. Um, racism, I, I think... It's one of those chicken or egg kind of questions. Which came first, race or racism? I, I think racism probably came first. And, and then race comes about as a means of, of establishing some sort of who's more valuable, who's more like God, who's better, who's, who's worth more, who, who contributes more, who do we like more. Race kind of comes after, I think, racism in that sense. Let's talk about what the Bible has to say about this. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak a lot to maybe what we think of when we think of racism, right? Uh, the Bible's not thinking about American black and white racist history. Um, but the Bible does speak to these prejudices that people often tend to have against people who don't look like them. And in fact, there's a really prominent example in the book of Numbers. If you turn there, chapter 12. Um, you know, Moses, he, uh, early on in Exodus, he married Zipporah, this uh, Midianite woman. Midianite, right? Midianite. Midianite? Anyway, he marries this woman, brings her into the people of God, and uh, we don't really know what exactly happens to Zipporah, because here in, in Numbers, Moses gets married again. I don't, I don't think it's polygamy. I think it's like a, a new wife. Um, he, he marries a, a woman. And it becomes a, a means by which Miriam, his sister, and Aaron, his brother, question and challenge Moses' legitimacy. Um, so let's see. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now, why is that significant? What, what was a Cushite? Well, a Cushite actually in this case would have been like an Ethiopian, like a black African woman that Moses brings into Israel. That's, that's significant. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it, which is not always something you want to be said. And, they, and, uh, and the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. The three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. That's an interesting punishment for the Lord to dole out in that situation. 
But knowing the skin tone of Moses' wife, it makes sense. Miriam has this problem with this woman. She uses this as a way to really establish kind of a, a proxy war ultimately against God's authority. And, and, and the Lord's punishment for her is that since she values so much the color of skin, he gives her leprosy. And it's no mistake that the Bible is clear. Her skin became white as snow. All right, the Lord says, if this is, if this is how you're going to see things, if this is how you're going to operate, if this is how you'll treat my servant, this is the, the fitting punishment, I think, uh, until you'll repent. And the Lord approves of Moses. Uh, but Miriam, in, in her sin, he, he punish her, punishes her this way. And of course, it, it goes on to tell us how Moses pleads for his sister, prays for her, and the Lord heals her. But this is a big lesson in the life of God's people. Uh, the ultimate point of this passage, I don't think, is don't be racist. I, I don't think that's what the Bible is saying right here. I think that's, that's a part of it. Ultimately, it's saying don't question, don't challenge God's authority, don't challenge God's servant. But do you see how Miriam uses something like race as a means of ultimately questioning and challenging God? I, I think that's, that's true of the way a lot of people see and, and use and distinguish among people. It's not as simple as just hating other people. It, it is a challenge to God's authority. It's a challenge to his, his plan and his purpose. So racism, according to the Bible, just right here, we see this example of, of how racism can be a, a very personal, individual sort of thing that, that somebody might uh, participate in or be guilty of. But it's, it's not just personal. It's not just individual. It can also be systemic. It can also be people-wide. It can be corporate in nature. Uh, a few months ago, I preached through Acts chapter 6, and in that chapter, we, we see two groups of widows in the church, one speaking primarily Aramaic, they're, they're Jewish widows, a more traditional kind of Jewish widow, and then another group of widows, also Jewish, but Hellenistic, they, they speak Greek, uh, maybe some of their traditions are a little bit different. In the life of the church, and, and through no malicious intent, uh, what comes about is that the, the Greek-speaking widows are being overlooked when it comes to provisions of daily food and water and so on. They're just being overlooked. Uh, whereas the, the Hebrew women are, are being served and cared for and tended to. And this comes to the attention of Peter and the apostles, and they determine that it would be best for them to set men, servants, deacons, is kind of a prototype here, overseeing waiting on tables. And the names that they pick to wait on these tables, the names of the men that they pick to serve in this role, it's interesting, they're, they're all by and large Greek-sounding names. So here you have this unintended, maybe, uh, oversight of a particularly marginalized group of people in the church. Uh, but, but, but the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, it says he, he guides them to finding men who will, who will not overlook these, these women in the church. Uh, acknowledging, hey, maybe it would be helpful if we found some men who speak Greek, and this is kind of their heritage and culture, and we can bring them in, and they can help us to keep our eyes on issues that we're not necessarily thinking of. 
so racism can, can be personal, it can be systemic in the life of the church. And I, I think that systemic problem is something that maybe we, just as the people of God, tend to be weakest on. Uh, or we think of sin much more in racism, much more in terms of personal things, things that you might say, things that you might do, maybe even an attitude that you personally might have. Uh, but how often do we think about it in, in a broader way, in terms of things that we just don't think about? The things that just as, as maybe the majority of people, we're just, just not on our radar, and we're kind of in an echo chamber where we can easily ignore one another. Uh, the, the Bible speaks to both. And, and I think, finally, then, concerning these different peoples and how we're to interact in the life of the church, the people of God should be a haven for peoples on the margin. And this, is, this has been part of God's design from the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 23, the Lord has just delivered them out of Egypt, and one of the very first things he tells them to do and to be sure of is that any sojourner or foreigner among them be, be treated with dignity and respect and, and care, in part because these people have no real legal standing in the people of Israel. But the Lord doesn't say, kick them out, cast them out. He says, bring them in and, and care for them, tend to their needs. In Leviticus, he goes so far as to say, treat them as an Israelite. Treat them as one of your own. Uh, the Lord has always cared for the marginalized among his people. And, uh, and as Jesus reminds us himself, you know, as you have done to the least of these, you, you've also done this to me. So, so these are just some big, broad principles for how we need to, like, what, what are, what's our attitude supposed to be like when we enter into discussion of, of race, when we navigate um, the, the difficult conversations that maybe we see going on around us? Um, how, do we, how do we care for one another? Well, we, we need to be coming into it with, with this knowledge, right? We need to come into it with this doctrine. We need to come into it with this heart awareness. We need these principles to, to guide our starting point, they're our foundation. And without them, everything else just kind of falls apart and relies on our own wisdom. So let's look at some practical steps to combat racism personally and corporately. This will be much quicker. I think we need to identify our identity. How do you identify? Um, are you first and foremost uh, a, a, a white Southern man? Is that, is that how you think of yourself first? I'm not saying don't think of yourself as that. I, mean, I am saying, though, that your ultimate identity, our ultimate identity is, is nothing like that. Our ultimate identity is, is in Christ, right? We need to think about ourselves in that way then. It means our allegiance is ultimately to a, a king and a kingdom that is far different from any in this world. My allegiance is to Christ, not to the United States. Right? My allegiance is to Christ, not to my family's heritage or background. My allegiance is to Christ, not to the earthly traditions that, that, that I have. Uh, he, he is where my identity resides. Number two, I think we need to examine our hearts. Um, are you prone to being cynical, skeptical, dismissive? Ah, you, they don't know what they're talking about. Ah, more of that again. I, can't, I don't want to. That's not the attitude that Christians should have when we enter into anything. We, we should be eager to, to hear 
eager to engage, eager to think. Um, James 1, 19 and 20, he says, be, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to post, slow to type, slow to shout, right? quick to listen. I just see so little of that. I see it in my own heart. I mean, my own tendency is to immediately, and so many things, just tense up and let me tell you what the truth is. Um, that's not the mindset of a Christian. Certainly not the mindset of Jesus, uh, who took on flesh, came to dwell among us. And this is, you know, this is why when, when people say, uh, you hear it every now and then, ah, you know what, racism wouldn't be a problem if people just wouldn't talk about it. You know, the problem is that everybody's stirring everybody up because we're always talking about it. Um, cancer's not a problem because people talk about cancer, right? Now, the problem is not talking. The, the problem, I think, is, is listening. How quick are we to hear one another to listen? We need to choose our words carefully when we do talk. Um, how often have you heard it said, or maybe even said yourself, or thought yourself? I don't, I don't see color. I'm colorblind, right? Um, I mean, the notion is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> uh, let's not kid ourselves. Let's not pretend. The Bible's not colorblind, and, and neither should we be. We shouldn't even strive for that. No, we we need to acknowledge and see the differences in one another, the things that the Lord is doing in different cultures, different places, through different languages, right? No, no one culture is dominant. Let's not try to flatten it all out or make it all look more palatable to the way I might perceive the world. No, let's, let's back out. Let's say, oh, wait, wait a second. No, I, I do see the differences among us. I see the ways that the Lord is using our differences to actually redeem humanity, to glorify himself. Um, a, a symphony with just trumpets is not a, a symphony, right? You need all these instruments to actually build up a song that is worth listening to. No offense to you trumpet players. Uh, you, you need that. So let's, let's not turn an eye, turn a blind eye to the, the ways in which we're different because honestly, sometimes saying I'm colorblind, I don't see things that way is, is kind of like saying I don't see you at all. It's to, to our black and brown brothers and sisters. Whose, uh, whose, whose family history, whose life has been so much having to navigate the color of their skin and the things that their, their family and their ancestors have had to hold on to through centuries. I don't see color. Um, oftentimes is understood as, I don't see what really you bring to the table at all. I don't see your perspective. I don't, I don't see the, the things that you're saying. It doesn't make sense to me because it's just not, it's just not where I come from. Um, let's... Let's be more deliberate um, in the way that we, we see one another and listen to one another. Think about the, the jokes the, that we sometimes hear, maybe even tell, or the details that we find necessary to bring into stories that are just so unnecessary to the actual story itself. Um, are we the kind of people who shut that down? Are we the kind of people where that joke just lands on deaf ears? And we should be. And we should be. Um, we need to be careful how we uh, generalize. Oftentimes stereotyping. And sometimes it looks like all blank 
people are like this or think this or say this. We, I think we see that as, as being wrong and kind of silly. Um, but I think a more subversive way we tend to stereotype is to, to say, well, I think this or I believe that because I've got a friend who is this and he says, as if he represents everyone who looks and, th- and, and, and comes from the same background as he does, right? I mean, that's, that's the same, it's the same thing. It's, it's stereotyping. Um, as Christians, we, we need to see people more broadly than, than that, right? Uh, we need to see people as individuals, not just as, as members of a, of a group. Uh, number four, we need, to, we need to make friends broadly. You know, who do you invite to dinner? Whom do you pray for? Um, whom do you weep with? laugh with? Who do you sit next to on Sunday mornings? It's so, it's so easy to sit next to people we, we look like and think like and feel comfortable just next to just naturally. We gravitate that way. But are you actively fighting uh, against that to, to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forego this tendency in me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to somebody who doesn't look like me. I'm going to go to somebody who doesn't have the same understanding of the world that I, that I do necessarily. I'm going to, I'm going to bring them into to my circle. I'm going to get to know them. Where do you go? Where do you buy your groceries? Where do you, where do you want to move to when you have enough money to buy that house? Where, where, what, what parts of town do you frequent? What parts of town are you not going to? We need to be deliberate about these things. We need to be mindful of the ways maybe even we ourselves tend to be prejudiced uh, and, and actively seek to combat that, right? Um, to, to love and care for people who, who don't necessarily look or think like us. We need to think deliberately, I think, is, is this final point. And there are plenty of books that I, I put down here that, that I would absolutely recommend that you look into and, and check out. Um, there's one book I, I did not list here. It's by Trillian Newbell. It's called God's Very Good Idea. It's a children's book, and uh, it's really well illustrated. But it, it so perfectly illustrates and, and covers just exactly what the Lord has done by creating so many different kinds of people and what the church's role is in, in uniting all these different kinds of people and God's plan to glorify himself. Uh, if you're looking for that for, for kids, just thinking through that, I, I really recommend it. Um, these other books, John Piper's book called Bloodlines is, is really helpful. The Gospel and Racial Reconciliation is pretty, it's pretty thin. It's very short. Um, it's put out by the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, of the SBC. Um, it's got a bunch of different authors who contribute to that. I don't know that I agree with every single thing that they put forward necessarily, but I, I think it's really helpful. And then uh, another book, Divided by Faith, it's more of a technical book, but it, it really helps to diagnose maybe some problems in the church. These, these Christians, these two men, they, they did some research in around 2000, 2001, looking at churches and why it's so common to see a white, predominantly white church versus a predominantly black church, even today. You know, how, how does that happen? And they, they look into some of the reasons for that, and it's really eye-opening. Uh, I found it really helpful, and I encourage you to read that. I'm going to pause there. Uh, I realize the hour is a little late. Uh, if you need to go pick up your kids, go, go do that. But any, I'd love to just take a moment just to answer any questions that you might have or, or just kind of thoughts that, that come to your mind. Uh, we'll, we can work through two or three. We've got a few guys with mics, Stephen and 
Ian. Any, any questions? Thoughts? It's okay to ask questions. All right. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I, I thank you for the, the ways that you've made us, the ways that you made people. Um, nothing is by accident. Um, and, and you have always had a plan to glorify yourself through the nations. Not in spite of the nations, but through the nations. Despite all the things that seem to separate us and the way that this world wants to divide people and put everyone into camps, we know that you have called us together in Christ for unity in the midst of the diversity that you've made. So help us then to, to listen to one another, to be eager to serve and care for one another to consider others better than ourselves. Not, not for our own glory, and, and not as this world wants for, for its own sake. How quickly those things come and go. We, we want something far, we want something eternal. We want to show the world where we are heading. And, and by your grace, show others the beauty and the, the, the wonder of the cross um, at which we all kneel. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.